The following podcast includes explicit language, not restricted to words beginning with F, S, B, and Q. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of March 16th, 2020. On this week's show, we will review the unprecedented near-total shutdown of sports in the last week due to the coronavirus. Former NFL executive Andrew Brandt and ESPN commentator and former NFL player Dominique Foxworth will be here to assess the league's new collective bargaining agreement, which was approved by players over the weekend. Soccer Hall of Famer Julie Foudy will also join us to talk about the latest developments in the U.S. women's soccer team's equal pay fight. And finally, we'll interview Tegan Hanlon of Alaska Public Media about one of the few sporting events that's still happening, the Iditarod sled dog race. Josh Levine is Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. He's taking the week off, mostly to work on season four of Slow Burn, but also, I hope, to bask and bump elbows after winning the 2020 National Book Critics Circle Award for Biography. I'm going to say that again. Josh Levine, author of The Queen, co-host of this podcast, won the 2020 National Book Critics Circle Award for Biography. That is just an incredible achievement and also totally deserved. And we are so, so proud of him. Congrats, Josh. I'm on lockdown in the attic of my house in Washington, D.C. Joining me also on lockdown from Palo Alto, California, is Slate's Joel Anderson, the host of Slow Burn Season 3. I don't know if it's going to be Slow Burn Season 5 or Season 25, Joel, but uh, the coronavirus, Trump, Slow Burn seems inevitable. Yeah, man, that that seems like an inevitable slow burn. I mean, I don't know. There'll probably be about three or four slow burns just based on the Trump presidency in one yeah, way or another. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. Slow burn 12, 13, 14, 15. Hey, at least we know that the franchise has a, a long, long life coming. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. All right, let's start talking about some sports. We're all adjusting to a world without them. I was going to start listing stuff that's gone. March Madness, the NBA, MLB, XFL. But it's really pointless, Joel, and yet it's hard to let it go. The ticker at the top of ESPN's homepage right now on Monday morning actually lists sports results. Maybe the tech guys couldn't get it off of there. Maybe they left it on there for our comfort just to remind us that somewhere People are playing something. So in the interest of journalism, I am here to report that Atlas beat Toluca 3-2 in Liga MX, the Mexican Soccer League. Mexico is taking a casual approach to the coronavirus right now. In the Russian Premier League, Joel, Sochi beat Krasnodar 2-0. It's weird, and we are all very disoriented. I didn't realize Sochi had its own team. I hadn't heard that since the uh, Winter Games. But Right? Yeah. That's why I picked them. There were three games, but I went with Sochi. Oh, man, good for them. They still got, they figured out a way to use some of those facilities there. But yeah, no, I wish there was a way to retrace our conversation from the previous weeks where we could just get a sense for our voices and the rise in tension and the gradual, you know, uh, <laughs> the gradual incursion of gravity in our voices when we talk about this, because we just had no sense that we would be here, that the idea of merely playing games would be in some ways an affront to a lot of people. The idea that things could be normal, that we could go on and continue to have sports and have games and things to watch and talk about on TV. And, you know, we were talking about that this morning, that the NFL, in the midst of all this, although they admittedly have no games and seem to be, you know, pushing back on the idea that they're going to have a combine event, they're still sort of proceeding as if there's not a global pandemic. You know, they just, you know, teams just signed, uh, the Tennessee Titans just signed Ryan Tannehill to a four-year, possibly $118 million contract. People are talking about where Tom Brady is going to go. 
you know, this offseason still. Like, that's still an ongoing topic. It's just hard to believe that just the mere idea that the NFL is proceeding as if nothing is going on, even though they're not playing games, is something that could be offensive. Yeah, we'll get into that with Foxworth and Brandt, I think. On a bigger scope for me, what's really on my mind is that, look, the CDC on Sunday said no gatherings of more than 50 people for eight weeks. That's mid-May. I mean, sports don't really matter, especially as these numbers escalate. And, you know, I know Josh pushed back on me last week when I said that sports don't matter. I mean, they matter psychologically and they matter because it's entertainment and they matter because we love them. But I think we're going to have to start grappling with the idea that we just don't know when sports will start again. You know, I saw people speculating on the Twitter a year, 18 months, that we just can't fully appreciate what's going to happen right now. Yeah. I mean, even the NBA, uh, I think uh, uh, NBA commissioner Adam Silver earlier this week was talking on TV about potentially getting things going again in a month. And that just seems the way things are going right now, absurd, right? And I, I remember even, when, you know, when we had that conversation uh, with Josh about, you know, sports mattering or whatever, there was a high school here in the Bay Area in San Francisco that a defending state champ in women's soccer, and they were pulled off the field minutes before their final game. They were going to defend their championship, and they were pulled off because of coronavirus concerns. And it seemed like a ridiculous overreaction. A lot of people argued that it was hasty. And that's just like a week ago. You know, um, we, we, we really don't have any idea how long this is going to go, but I just sort of marvel at the idea of how far we've come in just a couple of weeks. That continues to stick with me that we haven't been able to sort of wrap our minds around the idea that, oh, things might not go back to normal, by which I mean, we might not see games, literal games, for a very, very long time. People play these games. People that can uh, transmit coronavirus. People that can get infected with coronavirus. People that could die. Like, again, we were, I remember last week I was looking at a video of University of Houston basketball coach Kelvin Sampson talking about the tournament getting canceled. And I was like, oh, man, Kelvin Sampson is at risk. Like, he's old enough that he falls within the category of somebody that if he got coronavirus, he could be seriously ill. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you sort of move beyond the realm of, hey, what what about our entertainment and what about these businesses into the very personal realm? And that's, I think, what's obviously driven this conversation. You know, Rudy Gobert testing positive and the NBA shutting down altered the entire landscape of how we should think about our future, not just sports future, but our future. But these leagues have to do something, right? The NFL is has got to sort of proceed as if there's going to be a season in the fall. I guess the NBA's owners met in the last few days. They're coming up with with scenarios for how to restart the league. You know, maybe restarting in the summer without fans. How short should the schedule be? Do you want to not bump into the NFL season? All of this may be rendered moot. But that's what has to happen. I mean, even the International Olympic Committee, the organizers of the Tokyo Games are still saying, and this sounds a little bit like whistling in the dark at this point, the Games will begin on July 24. That seems crazy to me. Yeah, I think it is crazy. And, you know, well, actually, let's back up for a second with the Olympics, because calling off the Olympics does not seem quite as outrageous for whatever reason to me. And maybe that's because within our lifetimes, we've grown up. And we have an understanding that the Olympics are as much a political event as they are a cultural one. So the U.S. didn't compete in the 1980 Summer Olympics or the 1968 Summer Olympics. Well, some of the athletes didn't compete in the 1968 Summer Olympics. In 1984, the L.A. Games, the USSR didn't compete. So we're sort of used to the idea that countries use the Olympics as uh, a showcase for something more than sports. So it's not implausible to me that the Olympics wouldn't happen but that it would be canceled because of a global pandemic is something that we definitely could not have seen. And yeah, I mean, who's to say that we'll be ready to that anybody will be ready to resume this? Because, I mean, in addition to the idea that the games start in July, August, they ha- athletes have to train uh, in between now and then. And there's I don't understand. Like my gym just closed over the weekend. Like they finally decided, hey, man, it's too unsafe for people to show up here. Where are these people going to get the opportunity to go train? Where are they going to be going where they can keep up with their their sport? I mean, I'm sure that 
millionaire, billionaire, you know, athletes and industries can figure some of that out. But the Olympics is a little bit different. I don't know that your regular, you know, steeplechase person can just go find someplace and replicate the conditions needed to train for the Olympics. Or your basketball team or your handball team. There are teams in the Olympics, too where athletes have to congregate and play against one another in order to train. There's been also a conversation about what like, we're going to watch. ESPN still has a lot of programming time to fill. And back to the idea of continuing as if. Got to show something, got to talk about something. I mean, I turned on ESPN this morning and, you know, Stephen A. Smith was screaming at me about Tom Brady and Max Kellerman was doing the same. And they were at very high volume, very concerned about whether Brady was better than Ryan Tannehill or Jimmy Garoppolo. So it's got to keep going. They have to continue to feed the beast because they know that people want to watch that. And, you know, when Adam Schefter tweets that someone's been franchise tagged on Twitter, which has been happening um, on Monday morning as we're talking, there are hundreds of comments, good or bad for someone's team, whether they like it or not. Um, ESPN has canceled all of its DC-based shows for the moment, like Pardon the Interruption, according to Richard Deitch of The Athletic. Um, It put its early morning sports center on hiatus, Deitch reported, to keep people out of studios and keep employees from coming in. We don't know what's going to be on there. I mean, the, you know, with television, at least there's this backlog of movies and documentaries and old games that can air so people, you know, can can watch something during their lockdowns. Yeah, no, you mentioned the Adam Schefter, you know, the the, the chef bomb. And that stuff is actually sort of a relief to me. Like, you know, I know that maybe it, it doesn't kind of meet the moment, but it is nice to have something to think about or to watch on TV that is not all COVID-19 news, you know? Um, And so I think that sports in that way can play a role, but yeah, like the inventory, where is it going to come from? I don't know. But I mean, I think a lot of people have had, you know, the idea to, Hey, show old games, show old content, whatever that ends up being. I don't know how many times I could watch the 2005 Rose Bowl, but let's give it a shot. Let's see if I can watch it, you know, more than two or three times. And then you can just kind of run, you know, run through games, the 1983 Final Four or whatever. Um, I I think that they're going to have to get creative. And I also think sports leagues are going to get creative too. Like, I'm not in this world. I don't play video games. I don't do esports. But I've seen, you know, these streams of Devin Booker and everybody else playing video games. And I just wonder if some of that kind of stuff is going to fill in the gap while we figure out what comes next. That's a fascinating idea. I bet there are a lot of people that will watch Devin Booker play esports. Seriously, I'm not being facetious. And, you know, we're talking about ESPN, but let's not forget there's an MLB network and there's an NHL network and there's an NBA network and there's an NFL network. They have to fill time also. This is a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar problem for not just, you know, Sports leagues, of course, the entire economy, but this is going to have ramifications going on for years in terms of salary caps and player pay and revenue sharing. Um, If there's not much coming in, there's not going to be as much going out. There are some sports, Joel, that have continued. The UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship, has not shut down. That was also on the ESPN ticker. Some fights from, from Brazil. I found one state basketball tournament in Missouri is going on, a college wrestling tournament. This one blew me away. Did you see this? Yeah, I did. That that little small one that, uh, where, where was it? It wasn't in Dallas. Was it in, was it in the Dallas area? Is, do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The National Collegiate Wrestling Association, which is a non-NCAA body that was formed because a lot of wrestling programs had been cut partly because of alleged Title IX issues. And they, and this includes like Division I schools, go to this thing. And they had this tournament um, (laughs) that had hundreds of athletes. The guy, the executive director, quoted as saying, I think a lot of this is driven by fear when he was asked why he didn't cancel the event. 
Yeah, no, I think, I mean, they, they had the Liberty University coach, which, I mean, go figure. Uh, say, you know, from from a philosophical perspective, do I think it's overhyped? Yes, I do. So, I mean, like, we, we're not, you know, we're not dealing with infectious disease experts at that uh, at that wrestling tournament. Or maybe they are some, I don't know. But uh, at least the people that were quoted don't appear to have much, uh, you know, expertise or knowledge about the danger. And staging an event where people are rolling around on top of each other, sweaty, uh, you know, in a tight and in, <laughs> in tights in a in, in a tightly enclosed gym, it seems like exactly the sort of thing that you wouldn't want. Like if you could just take the analog of the advice of the experts and say, what's the sporting event that is most dangerous under these circumstances? Wrestling seems like it would be up there, but they're just going to, you know, thug their way through it, basically, which is just really weird. But that isn't that different from what we're seeing in the world as it is, right? I mean, if you were on social media like I was all weekend, you saw people going out to bars, you saw people going out to restaurants. It took local governments and state governments saying, hey, you're not allowed to do this anymore for people to be moderately responsive to that. And I think that probably is the same with the National Collegiate Wrestling Association National Championships. If somebody had stepped in and said, hey, look, this is a bad idea. We can't do it. They wouldn't have done it. But it requires strong leadership and clear advice. And that's the sort of thing that's been lacking all over the place, not just in sports. Yeah, even in my little world, I wrote about the uh sort of dilemma that Scrabble players are facing about whether clubs and tournaments should be shut down. I did a piece for Slate over the weekend and the governing body for Scrabble in North America, the North American Scrabble Players Association, has declined to shut it down. They're leaving it up to local officials. The guy who runs the association I talked to and he basically said that people should just be governed by what their local municipalities are advising to do. And my response was, well, every health expert in the country seems to be encouraging social distancing with some very specifics and whether or not there's a formal shutdown in your local community. It seems that leaving the decision about whether to have even 10 or 8 or 20 people get together in a small place and share tiles and bags and boards and breath seems like a bad idea to me. Um, and there, there were Scrabble players who were physicians and there was a petition started by one urging the the organization to to shut it down but so far no mandate Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day that's 3% on your favorite products at Apple 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, before we talk about the NFL, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Joel and I will talk about the death of March Madness. If you want to hear that and you're not a member, you can sign up for Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. And you can do that signing up at slate.com slash hangup plus. And what probably qualifies as the only sports news to break over the weekend that wasn't connected to the coronavirus, NFL players on Sunday narrowly voted to approve a new collective bargaining agreement with NFL owners. How narrowly? The votes for the deal numbered 1,019 for and 959 votes against the proposal, a difference of only 60 votes, and consider that about 500 NFL players didn't actually cast a ballot. So there's going to be lots of changes to the NFL as a result of this new CBA. Probably the two biggest, the ones you likely heard about before ballots were even cast, were expanding the regular season from 16 to 17 games and adding two more teams to the NFL's playoff field starting as soon as next season, whenever that starts. There's also a lot of stuff that might go unnoticed by the casual NFL fan. There will be a bump in minimum salaries. There will be two more players added to the game day rosters. The players will get a slightly larger share of the revenue starting in 2021. And the league will stop suspending players for positive marijuana tests. It's a big, big deal. But on social media and in regular media, opinions were predictably divided on whether this was a win for the players or another route by the owners. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said, 
We are pleased that the players have voted to ratify the proposed new CBA, which will provide substantial benefits to all current and retired players, increase jobs, ensure continued progress on player safety, and give our fans more and better football. There they go again, conflating more football with better football. But anyway, we're going to get into it. We For this segment, we're joined by Dominique Foxworth, a former NFL player with the Broncos, Falcons, and Ravens, a former president of the NFLPA, and he now talks about the league and a whole bunch of other stuff for ESPN. We've also got Andrew Brown. Brent. He's a columnist for Sports Illustrated's MMQB, a former front office executive with the Green Bay Packers, and the executive director of the Morad Center for the Study of Sports Law at Villanova University. Thanks for joining us, Dominique and Andrew. So you guys, I'll just kind of throw this out there. You all seem to have been skeptical of the deal for the players before they ever signed it. What do you think of what they signed on Monday and what they settled on? I don't know that I would say that I was skeptical. I think the deal was interesting. The If you want to put a positive spin on it from the player side, I think this is the first time you can look at all the major sports in the last decade plus. This is the first time that there's been financial gains on the player side. And you can't get anything in negotiations unless you're willing to pay some sort of price. Normally that price is a strike, a work stoppage, or protracted legal battles. The price in this case is an extra game. And it's up to them, the guys who are going to be subjecting themselves to the risk and violence of a game. It's up to to them to decide whether the price is fair or not. But I do think it's uh, generally we're underestimating how uh, expensive, I guess, for lack of a better term, it is to play one more football game. I know we talked about how they're reducing some of the off-season requirements and they're trying to reduce some of the practice requirements the intensity of some of the practices, but nothing equals uh, an extra game. You can't take away a preseason game and a bunch of practices and think that the wear and tear on these guys' bodies is going to be a net kind of uh, net neutral at the end of the day. Yeah, I think I agree with Dominic in a lot of ways. The, the, the thing to me was not sort of the hot take winner or loser of this deal. It's just to me, there's an inequitability about this where you have a massive concession by the players inventory. The owners want to grow the game. I get it. The game is limited at 16 games. The game is limited in this country. They want to be bigger and bigger and bigger. And what better way to add another game? But I just don't know how this became, at one point, I thought 17 games was a non-negotiable for the player's side. Yet we hear now that 17 games became a non-negotiable for the owner's side. And I just don't think they got enough. If you sort of pull back and for the average casual fan saying, oh, what happened in that CBA? The headline is going to be the 17 games and then the extra playoff games where the second seed no longer gets a buy as well. And the headline for the players? Well, yeah, I don't know, extra minimum money. Uh, as Dom mentioned, some, some increases in pensions and benefits, some incremental gains on health and safety rules that, to me, owners were going to give anyway. So it just seems like an inequitable deal to give up that massive concession of an extra game. So, I mean, I, I would understand and agree with you. The way, place I would push back is you're not accounting necessarily for the change in revenue. And while it can climb up to, I think, 48.8 is the high end if TV money goes up to as high as they expect it to go, that's significant. That's billions of dollars. And I'm not arguing that this is a good deal. And I would say that I was a part of the last negotiations where uh, the owners presented 18 games. And that was uh, kind of a deal breaker at that point. They presented 18 games and we were like, all right, well, we don't even need to talk. We'll see you at the lockout. And they backed off of that. But I suspect that they were just trying to kind of move Overton window and and that negotiation to prepare, prepare for the one that was coming up this time to make 17 games seem more palatable. So I agree with you that maybe it's not enough, but the tough thing having been involved in those negotiations is how do you get more? <laughs> That's everyone who criticizes the deal. And I, I'm one who criticizes it also. Like the real tough part is like, where do you create any more leverage than you already created as a player? Back to uh, non-negotiables. I just, I mean, I saw in Thomas Morstead's tweet about, you know, we asked for 53%. I mean, listen, I get it. But if the owners say, hey, listen, no way, no how, we are doing a deal without 17 games. Now, maybe the players said, no way, no how, we're doing a deal without, you know, all these increases that they got. But what if they said, no way, no how, we're doing a deal without a 50-50 split? Now, again, the owners could say no, and then the fear factor, it's not going to be a good deal next time, and it's going to get worse, and strikes, and lockouts. 
I think there was too much of that. I mean, this. I when I talk to people about the deal, I hear so much. Well, they would never stay together. There'd be a lockout. The owners would rub their nose in it. It was never about this is a really good deal. It was all about the fear if they don't take it, which was frustrating to hear. Dom, you've been involved in previous negotiations. You were president of the Players Association. I was talking to one of our former Broncos teammates, my friend Nate Jackson, about the the deal. And he pointed out what a lot of people are pointing out is the discrepancy between what low income by NFL standards players uh, felt about this and what the superstar end of the league felt about this. And this is a common common outcome in these deals. The top end seemed to be opposed. The lower end, concerned about their careers, which only last two, two and a half, three years, um, are more favorable because they don't want to lose time to, to a work stoppage. Nate wrote to me, this means that the, the player's money at the low end will last them seven years after they retire instead of five, and the owners will always be billionaires. Is the resentment between the superstars in the league and the rank and file um, problematic going forward? No, I mean, I've always kind of disagreed with that characterization. I think it's an easy one, and I think logically it makes sense. But if you're actually in those rooms, no one actually considers themselves rank and file. Like, that's not how no one entered this league with the expectation of making a couple hundred thousand dollars over a few years and then leaving, having had a two or three year career. Like, everyone who's in the league now believes that they are just uh, a chance away from hitting that home run deal and getting that big contract extension. So it's hard for me to imagine that any of the players, and I know during my negotiations, so few of the players were caught up in raising their minimum salary and adding a couple hundred thousand dollars to this year's salary. So, so many more of the players and the guys who were second string and six round draft picks, even those guys were very concerned with what the free agency pool was going to look like, how, um, franchise taggings tags would impact them because that's why you enter the league when you're 10 years old and you commit yourself at that point to making it to the NFL. It's not so that you can have a four year career and no one who's in the league, like honestly thinks like, yeah, this is just going to be four years because that'd be a really bad decision. That's that's a poor use of your time. If you got to the league and only played for four years, like that's a, a lifetime's worth of commitment for while hundreds of thousands of dollars is not is nothing to sneeze at. It's not enough to live your life of, and it's certainly not enough to validate the sacrifices that players have made to get there. So I, I don't know. I find that characterization hard. I think it's obvious and easy, but no one actually sees themselves as that player. They don't think their career is going to be four years or three years until it actually is over and they're two years out and the phone stops ringing. I think if that characterization was true, Stefan, I, I just think then you're saying, well, so a thousand players are stars. Because 990, 60 players voted against this deal. And what, maybe 20 of them are stars? I mean, think about that characterization. So we have a deal in place for 11 years that the executive council was against. That the players' reps were barely for 17 to 14, one abstention. And that the full populace of players approved by a few dozen votes. So... This is not you know, rank and file versus stars. The evidence is there that there's deep division about this deal. And if the rules, as Dom knows better than anyone, say that's the rules and it passes, great. But there's lingering feelings about this deal at all levels. Practice yeah, I think, up to superstar. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I think the, the people I've talked to, some executive committee members and some reps, their issue with this deal is less so with the specifics of the deal as much as it's about the process. So many of them felt like um, we were not up against or they were not up against a hard deadline like we were when we went through our negotiations where if we did not take a deal, the season would likely, we would we would likely miss four games at least or we would miss some sort of games because we signed the deal in the summer before the start of the season. So these guys, I think, thought they had more time and then all of a sudden it was laid on their lap, at least from their perspective, this is the deal. Take it or leave it. If you don't take it now, we're going to get locked out or we're going to go on strike. And I think that's what guys are angry about. That's what they were voting no to more so than they were voting no to uh, the deal itself. They were voting no to feeling like it was they weren't involved in the process and then it was slammed on their lap. Well, Andrew, was that a legitimate fear? I mean, the the they're going into TV negotiations. That obviously was driving the owner's desire to get this done sooner rather than later. 
Um, could the players have have done what Dom is just suggesting? Just said, well, pump, pump the brakes on this and let's renegotiate when we're closer to the deadline next year. I think so. And I listen again. I felt what Dominique felt. I felt like a lot of people were talking as we were sitting here in March 2021 and not March 20. And the way this deal was framed, it was an early deal. So we're a year away. And as I said before, what would happen if they turned it down? There seemed to be this sort of uh, narrative that the owners would rub their noses in it like a dog who pooped on the carpet and never come back, pack up their briefcases and put a worse deal out there. I just think that's not the case. I, I know there's all this dissension between owners and players, but I just don't see them ignoring the players for a year if that happened. And, you know, the TV deals were driving this. And, of course, it's all different now with the crisis. But what did the, what did the NFL need to do these long-term TV deals? They need one, labor peace, because no TV network's going to jump in fearing a lockout. And two, 17 games. And who holds the key to both? The players. So I, I just didn't understand this fear-based mentality about, well, you better do it now because right. who knows? Again, we're a year away. Yeah, I think the fear is certainly something that is not comfortable, but I think it's something that even if it's not generated externally, it's something that the players feel. And again, I have my experience to fall back on, and my experience was different because we were actually backs against the wall. But guys aren't willing, aren't necessarily interested in taking more risk. And I think the reason why some of the star players are more outspoken about it is because, frankly, they do have uh, some financial security. And whether the deal was going to get substantially better or a little bit better or still be the same, I think uh, uh, when it was time to make a decision, a lot of guys were like, well, this deal is on the table. This means that I'm going to be able to continue to play football. This means that I'm going to get paid. And in their minds, I'm not sure it's worth it. Uh, and I honestly, logically, it may not be actually worth it to go back and put all that in jeopardy. And while you might be right, they might have more leverage if they did it that way, Andrew, they might also just end up where they were or end up worse off. And it's just not worth it for them that they've sacrificed so much through the course of their lives to get to this point. I imagine that they look at this and they're like, well, this isn't the time to to this time when I'm right on the brink or the precipice of getting all this money that I've been working for and having this opportunity and playing the game that I love, this is not the time to try to play hard hardball. I suspect that that was the the uh, calculus for a lot of the players who voted yes. Yeah, I get it. And I just one more thing on the superstar thing. I just think to me it's kind of the the inverse. If Aaron Rodgers, J.J. Watt, Russell Wilson really really didn't care about everyone else right they'd say yeah take the deal sure i'm fine either way exactly. you know take your deal but but it's the other way i think you know them fighting for players that that don't have what they do I, i'm i just kind of look at it that way like they're not saying you know it's all about us it was all about them take it sure fine no problem with them they're on their they got their money so i think that was framed the wrong way well, who's responsible for putting that sort of pressure on the players? Because we talked about the idea that they're, you know, the players felt this pressure and, um, you know, that, that this deal had to get done. Where is it coming from then? Yeah, I would say that it's something that we perpetuate in the media, but I think it's something that the owners want to create and everyone who was involved in negotiating this deal wanted the deal to get done. They, they felt like they were at the end point and they could get nothing more. And so they don't want it to get like pushed back to them and said, fix it. So I think anyone who was involved in negotiating, at least that was the feeling coming out of negotiations that the leadership of the union wanted it done. The leadership on the league side wanted it, it done, but it, uh, some of the players felt that it was kind of thrown at them. Yeah. I mean, I, guys, you know, I negotiated contracts for the Packers for 10 years and I, listen, this was very strategic by the owners and, and they do it. I did it on the team side all the time. You offer enough early money to entice a player to a long-term deal and get cost certainty extending out. On the individual player side, you give them X million dollar bonus. They jump in on a long-term deal and you've got that cost certainty. Here, they go to 65% of the players who are making minimum, 65% of the league, we're told, and offer $100,000. 
you know, that's enticing. And sure, they're not thinking about what the deal is going to look like in eight years when they're out of the league. So I just think that was strategic by the owners. And again, back to the original point, even with that, half the league said no. We got a couple more minutes here, guys. I wanted to pivot to something that just happened as we were talking. The NFL announced that they're going to hold the 2020 draft as scheduled April 23rd to 25th in Las Vegas, but no public events around the draft. The league seems to be moving forward with a semblance of normalcy here. Do you think they should be putting things on pause or do they just have to plan like any business would plan for the, the the possibility that the season will start as scheduled. Yeah, it's Andrew. I've been critical uh, of starting. Forget about the draft. Of course, they're not going to hold a big public draft for the you know when the whole world is not gathering. Uh, I've been critical of free agency starting as we speak right now. I just I get it. We want normalcy. I get it. These free agent visits don't involve a lot of public gathering, and I get it. Teams have to operate, but think about it. Teams are sent home. No one's working. I mean, I guess you can do your GM, can work from the basement and get his deals done. But this is really what the NFL wants to do now. I mean, by the time free agency starts on Wednesday, we may be in a national quarantine. Who knows? It just seems to me a little odd. I get people want normalcy. People want to read about sports. But it just seems odd to be transacting the busiest week of the NFL business-wise right now. Yeah, I understand that it seems odd. I'm I'm less offended by it. I I get that it's optically not a good look. You have them kind of making these million dollar transactions while they're the country is obviously gonna be suffering, individuals in the country at large are suffering financially because of the quarantine. However, there's also like the argument that you made for normalcy. There is something to be said for having some sort of news out there that is not all doom and gloom because it's a it's a tough time right now and everything i turn on every podcast whether it's about movies or or uh sports or politics everything is quarantine 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 so i agree that it's it's not going to be pretty to see somebody sign a millions of dollar deal while we are seeing small businesses kind of uh take a hit but it also be nice to to kind of just for a second evaluate how how the Calais Campbell trade to the Ravens is going to impact the um, the AFC playoff line. Like it'll be nice to get back to that to some degree and have something that is not all this new. So uh, this is one of those times when I feel happy that I'm not in in one of those. I'm no longer in any leadership position to make those sort of decisions because I could see. Uh, I think I'd be more prone to just cancel it all because I'd be concerned about uh, how it looks. But as a, as a fan and a media member, I enjoyed seeing some Ryan Tannehill's deal come across and then thinking about what it means for Dak Prescott and not having to necessarily think about uh, this pandemic for whatever five minutes I got to do that. Yeah, I, I see your point, too. I just think I don't trust that we're going forward right now. For those who don't know, we're gonna, we're in this sort of tampering period. Teams can right. negotiate, but not sign official contracts until Wednesday afternoon. I'm still not sure Wednesday afternoon's a full go. Uh, you know, we'll just see what happens with the world. But as we sit if here, if I were today, a player, if I were a free agent at this moment, though, I'd absolutely be excited about getting to that that point. Like this is something that they've worked for. Free agency is something that they've. Oh, and I remember when I signed my free agent deal, I was nothing like this going on, but I'd be so stressed out if I was getting to this point where I could finally get the opportunity or kind of cash in on all the hard work that I'd kind of committed to this game for most of my life. It'd be pretty frustrating. And that's a minor concern, obviously, in the in all of this. But I think it's it's just from my idea, my perspective as a player, it's something that certainly crossed my mind if I was in free agency right now. I'd be be rooting against any sort of change in uh, in business as usual. No, and I, I get that too. I think if there was a way that they could, they meaning I guess us, we're media, could report so and so sign with the Tennessee Titans or so and so sign with the Denver Broncos. Period. I think that'd be fine. But I don't know. There's no way in God's green earth we're not going to see the numbers. Gentlemen, thanks so much for coming in and joining us on this very busy uh, morning. Please stay safe. Uh, Dominique, Andrew, thanks for joining us on Hang Up and Listen. Appreciate you having me. Enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. 
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Last week before the final game of the She Believes Cup tournament, the U.S. women's national soccer team came onto the field in Frisco, Texas, wearing their warm-up jerseys inside out. You could see the four stars representing the four World Cups that the team has won, but only the outline of the logo of the U.S. Soccer Federation below them. The gesture was the latest protest by the women in their fight for equal pay. It came after legal documents revealed a line of argument by the Federation that could have been typed by some misogynistic sports troll on Twitter. Playing for the U.S. men's national team requires a higher level of skill and carries more responsibility than playing for the women's team. Indisputable science, lawyers for the Federation asserted, shows that the women who have again won four World Cups were inferior to the men who have won Bupkis. Julie Foudy was on two of those World Cup winning teams. She's also got a couple of Olympic gold medals. She works now for ESPN. Welcome back to the show, Julie. Thank you. All right. The legal arguments prompted a stunning, really, I thought, stunning backlash against the Federation by players, by sponsors, by fans. And by the end of the week, the Federation's president, Carlos Cordero, resigned. This was a remarkable set of events. And for me, Julie, it reflected once again the power that these women you among them, have as a cultural force. But I want to start with the legal briefs. I mean, lawyers are going to lawyer, but the argument that, well, this team can't beat the under-17 boys national team, so they suck, is not just tone deaf, it is absurd. I mean, what did you think when you read this? Exactly that. The thing that kept coming into my mind is who at the Federation thought this was a good idea? And how does it pass so many people? And how, if you're general counsel, in-house counsel for U.S. soccer is a woman, does she think that is okay as well? Like, how how does all of this get through? Because clearly this is months of depositions, and they had to have known that the line of questioning and the road they were walking down, and to your point, lawyers are going to lawyer, even if a lawyer is telling me Telly's blue in the face or she's blue in the face that this is a great idea and they're trying to make this argument – there's not one person at U.S. Soccer who says, this is a terrible idea. Do you not see the optics of this in terms of sponsors and fans and players, of course, how they feel about it? So I don't, I don't get it. I don't get how it was such a miss and no one there saw it. Yeah. And, and Julie, I, I guess, you know, Megan Rapinoe has mentioned that, you know, there are these two, the players and the USSF have been at odds for a while and these conversations can get sort of ugly. And, and there was a mention of a deposition uh, not so long ago with a couple of players that sort of ventured into some ugly territory. But I'm just, just curious, just from you, like, is it a surprise that they'd stoop so low as to make that argument in the first place, though? Because, I mean, it just seems patently insulting, you know? Not a surprise, actually, because this is an argument they have thrown at us for years. It's nothing new. It's before it was no one cares about women's soccer. No one wants to watch women's soccer. There's no market for me- for women's soccer. And behind all of that thread was this idea that, you know, it's very different because the men won uh, a 15, 16 year old team could beat you. And, um, and the men attract and there's money and there's a market. And so, um, how dare you ask for more because it's never going to be that way. So there was always that thread, um, that was in negotiations going way back into my time. It was a very contentious relationship back then as well, but there was also a side of you as a player who thought, well, maybe it's an unconscious bias. Maybe, we're just reading into this in the wrong way. And it's not a full on, you know, misogynistic, sexist organization. And so the disappointing thing with this is it validates a lot of those 
thoughts we had going back years and that they were willing to to put that out there knowing that the public would see this and sponsors would see this. I, I just, again, I go back to who's the adult in the room who says, this is a terrible idea, you guys. What are we doing? I don't know how they could do that. Angela Hughley's, who was a player and later uh, was head of the Women's Sports Foundation and was on the U.S. Soccer Athletes Council that elected Cordero. Um, and she said that, you know, this sort of just confirmed the culture that has existed for, you know, going back two and three generations of players now. And I think for the groundbreaking teams like yours, Julie, from 1991 and 1999 that won the World Cup, there always struck me that there was the sense of we're going to get there. We just have to be patient. We're doing our best. Look at how many people watched us. They've got to come around at some point. And this is what, of course, triggered the litigation by the players under the Equal Pay Act that, no, we're actually not there. The women are seeking almost $67 million as part of this lawsuit and potentially millions more in back pay and damages. And I think the question now, Julie, is have the events of the last week sort of unmasking the U.S. soccer's legal strategy and the blowback, and now the ascension of a woman to succeed Carlos Cordero as as president, Cindy uh, Parlo-Cohn, who was also a player on the national team. Do you think that will actually change the, the dynamic of not just the case, but the structure of the federation vis-a-vis the women? Well, I think it's great that you have a player and a woman that's coming in as president, but let's remind people the president position is a volunteer position. And what they expect of the president in a volunteer position is way beyond a volunteer position. I mean, Cindy right now is going to have to come in and do the work of a handful of people. I mean, that is a task that is a huge, tall task. And it's not her role to come in and purge everyone because she's a volunteer president and there's no CEO. I think the first thing they have to do to write the ship is to hire a CEO and, uh, and and they keep saying this is imminent. They're going to fill this position. Dan Flynn, who is the prior CEO, uh, announced his retirement a year ago. And so this has been an ongoing thing. And there was an internal battle uh, within U.S. soccer if it would be someone from within. And so I think that got ugly as well. Um, so you have clearly a leadership crisis happening at U.S. soccer with no CEO to kind of right the ship. So I think the first thing is they got to get a CEO in. But, I mean, the silver lining in all of this is, to your point, is it's a woman who's played, Cindy. She gets it. She's lived this negotiating uh, and contentious battle for a long time. And if I'm the player's on the team right now of this current crop, at least you go, okay, here's someone who gets this. And mind you, she's going to have to move mountains to get this done in time to cr- to come to settlement before May. But finally we've got, and I would hope the, US, the current team is thinking, finally we've got a player who gets it, right? I mean, the question is, is how does the whole board miss this as well? And I think that's something they're going to have to address. They're going to have to bring in someone to say, okay, how do we get this so wrong? How do we botch this? And I would have someone come in and do an overview and say, what's going on here? How, how did, how did this happen? But to get that done before May. Because May is when the trial, when it's scheduled to go to trial. May 5th is when it's scheduled to go to trial. And, um, but if, if anyone can get it done, I think Cindy is the right person with all of her background to do it. But, but Julie, the, the question I have for you is, I guess, a, a two-part question. One, there's got to be no way in hell U.S. soccer would promote someone who might hurt their legal position and potentially cost them upwards of $67 million, right? That doesn't seem likely no matter how much of an ally she was to the women's game and was a player, right? Like it, 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 it doesn't seem like that's somebody they would put in that position to just sort of we're chastened now and we're ready to make amends. Yeah, but they don't, they don't have a choice here, Joel. She was a vice president, got promoted automatically because of his resignation. So I think the question is, does U.S. soccer change its legal strategy? Are they forced to settle here because of how they screwed up? Yeah, I think they have to change their legal strategy. I, the telling sign is when, you know, Coca-Cola, 
VW, Deloitte. I mean, you go down the line, it's, they all said, what, what are you doing here? Like, this is a brand that is your most successful brand at U.S. soccer. And you're essentially making this misogynistic argument about how they're inferior. So they can't continue down this course. And the thing that gets me too is, is there are so many villains out there that they could point to. You could say, look at FIFA and the market difference from FIFA. This isn't us, this is FIFA. And they have made that argument, but it wasn't their central tenet, I think, of their, of their argument. Why not make them the villain and say, we would love to pay you more and we will pay you more, as they're saying with US soccer controlled games, but FIFA is the bad guy here and FIFA is the one who's holding us back and make that argument. But they didn't. They chose to go down this path. And I do think that they're going to have sh- to clearly shift gears. Um, and I hope that they have time to do that. Yeah. Meantime, the women just go out and continue to win tournaments. They won that She Believes Cup. Their market power is has never been stronger, all due respect to you, Julie, and the, the 1999 team. Um, there are personalities on this team that are legitimate national sports superstars. And they are the drivers of soccer in America, arguably, right now. I mean, I tweeted sort of half tongue-in-cheek the other day. You know, maybe we should be talking about a U.S. Women's Soccer Federation. Um, Maybe this should be broken up and let them go out in the market and demonstrate how powerful they can be. Yeah, people have said that. And I've actually, being dear friends with Billie Jean King, you know, heard her story so many times of them breaking away to form uh, the women's tennis tour and what they did. I've always been of the mindset that we could fix this and we could do this together. And that similar to, you know, when you start, start an organization, I don't think there should be a separate women's division. I think they should be incorporated women into every single division of what you do, because, um, then the whole company understands what you're doing. Uh, but they're, And so I still stand by the fact that we could get it done, but my goodness, I mean, this illustrates better than anything that there needs to be a purge in terms of the culture, right? In terms of who they bring in. And that's really the challenge right now is, is how do you get good people in there when it is such a mess and they have so many lawsuits, not just this one that they're dealing with. I think the total number is about six right now. Um, it's, it's been bad leadership with bad instincts. And so you've got to get good people in there and that's going to take some time. And we saw that Demarcus Beasley and Dax McCarty also criticized U.S. soccer. And I was struck because I I remember we talked about this previously about the idea that the men, the U.S. members of the national team, the U.S. soccer's men's national team have been sort of missing in action through a lot of this battle over the years. But you know, you finally had a couple of men's soccer team players speaking up. Do you think that you've had enough support like that, you know, recently, um, now that things are sort of shifting and the tide is sort of turning? I think it's encouraging that you're seeing more of them speak up. And I don't think, I I mean, I think they've been advised to keep quiet um, by their legal team, but I don't think anyone is served if we're not working in this together. It's why I proposed, listen, let's go to a revenue share model where similar to what we're seeing with professional leagues is you take a percentage, right, of that pot and all money goes into the pot, FIFA money, sponsorship money, broadcast rights money, gate revenue money, and the teams take an equal percentage. You're not taking 100% of the pot, you're taking a percentage of the pot because you still have to fund programming, youth development, Paralympics, right? There's all these other programs that U.S. soccer runs that you want to support as well, but the men and women take an equal share of that pot. And people say, well, oh, the FIFA money is too big for the men's side. Why should they share all that? Because I think you could argue right now that the sponsorship money that's coming in from the women with their visibility and excess far outweighs what the men are bringing in. So put it all into one pot, split it evenly, get them all on the same page so that they're not fighting each other every four years over a new CBA, trying to renegotiate new terms and keep up with the other team. Like get us all on the same page so we're working together to grow the game together rather than right now I feel like it's a, we want our piece of the pie and they want their piece of the pie and we're not going to share and they're not going to share. And 
and then when the women do well, the men do well. And when the men do well, the women do well. And you're in this together. Julie Foudy is a member of the National Soccer Hall of Fame. She's won lots of medals, too. She's a commentator for ESPN. Julie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, you guys. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. That is the sound of some very good dogs at the start of the Iditarod in Anchorage on March 7th. Since then, almost every other sports event in America has, of course, stopped. But the Iditarod is kind of the quintessential social distancing sport. A musher, a team of sled dogs, a thousand miles across the Alaska snow. So on they go. The current leader is Thomas Warner of Norway. He was about 30 miles ahead of the other 50 teams as the doggies hit the Bering Sea coast on Sunday. Tegan Hamlin is a reporter with Alaska Public Media. She's been covering the race and she joins us from Anchorage. Hey, Tegan. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, I made it sound a little bit like the coronavirus isn't an issue at the Iditarod, which isn't true. The mushers are pretty isolated out there, but there is a big infrastructure around the race. So let's start there. Alaska had its first confirmed COVID-19 case on Thursday and schools were shut down until the end of the month. Did Iditarod officials consider halting the race? So race officials have said as of this weekend, they haven't considered stopping the race to Nome. They have, however, made some changes, and we saw those changes roll out kind of rapidly starting Friday after Alaska had its first confirmed case of coronavirus. I'm just sort of curious to know, because you, you, they mentioned a lot of these towns, um, and even I think there was an update about a town that had to, had to dig a trail around because they were sort of you know closing up for a coronavirus. But how much do these Alaskan towns depend on the Iditarod? Are there like are there e- economic fortunes tied in any way with this race? Yeah. So you know, communities along the trail are usually really excited for the Iditarod to come through. There's potlucks. People, you know, uh, kind of flock to the the buildings that are set up as the checkpoints where mushers come in to eat and rest. They bring down food. They bring down drinks. There's usually a lot of kids around who want to get autographs from the mushers or give them little gifts for the rest of their trail. So it's usually this really excited, joyous time across Alaska as these mushers make their way to Nome. And in Nome particularly, which is an old gold mining town in western Alaska, it's a big deal and it's a big economic generator. And that's kind Kind of what we should talk about is we do talk about how the Iditarod is the, you know, kind of the ultimate form of social distancing when we talk about sports, right? You mentioned mushers are traveling a thousand miles across really remote rural parts of Alaska, but with them come this whole troop of people, and it includes pilots, veterinarians, volunteers, reporters. And that is what these communities along the trail have raised some concerns about, that there are just so many people traveling with the race that could be carrying COVID-19. And that's why we started to see some of the changes, including, as you mentioned, two checkpoints in uh, Shaktulik and Nulato asked racers to bypass their villages completely. And I guess also, you know, important to note that these villages are really small. There's between 200 and 250 people, and they don't have access to robust health care. So there are concerns about coronavirus spreading and not having the infrastructure to deal with it. Yeah, I was reading a piece in the Anchorage Daily News about the village you mentioned, Shaktulik, and it's a lovely piece because the the residents sort of rallied. They found an abandoned um, house or, 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 or shed outside of town. They dug the snow out of it, and they basically refurbished it so that the mushers and their teams could stay there 
and route rather than going through the small village. But the thing in that story, Tegan, that really like stopped me cold was how one woman who was quoted, a middle school teacher, said her husband's great-grandmother survived the 1918 flu. And it really does just sort of strike you that, wow, the, you know, you mentioned the lack of health care. These small towns are at peril and, and the people must be worried too. Are the, are the residents worried? Are the mushers concerned? I mean, were they finding out about this while they were out in the, in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, they were. And you know, we, we have to remember that the mushers started this race in a world that was different than it is today, at least in Alaska, that was different than it is today. We hadn't had our first coronavirus case yet when the race started. Uh, coronavirus hadn't been labeled a pandemic yet. And so mushers, as they're racing, they've been learning about kind of just how significant the changes are that are being made across Alaska in an effort to prevent the spread of the virus from, you know, closing schools to shutting down our uh, public university system, at least in terms of in-person classes. So mushers, you know, we have a reporter out there. His name is Zachariah Hughes. He's our trail reporter. And he's been letting us know that mushers are reacting in a wide range of reactions or, or comments um, from, wow, I cannot believe this is happening to, wow, I'm really glad I'm out here right now and disconnected from everything to, you know, it's important to remember Thomas Warner, the front runner, he's from Norway. So he right now is dealing with concerns about how to get him and his dogs home from Nome. We actually, our reporter, Zach, talked to him earlier in the race, and he said his wife decided to fly back to Norway earlier because she was concerned that she wasn't going to be able to get home. So she won't be at the finish line as she had planned. And then to pivot to folks in the community and what they're saying, I talked to the superintendent of the school district in the region on Friday, and he said, you know, we really hate to inconvenience everyone. We're not happy that we have to shut our schools down to visitors and make these changes. But our healthcare system is just so tenuous and we really have to do our part to try to stop the spread of this of this virus, of coronavirus. So there was certainly concern from folks living in the community, certainly some disappointment of what they've had to do to adapt in these coronavirus times. But that's kind of what we're hearing so far. So it sounds like there's a lot of concern, obviously, for the coronavirus and preparations for what might happen, you know, if it becomes a problem, or if there are more cases that are discovered there. So is there even a lot of energy or enthusiasm around the race right now? Or like, are, are people really paying that much attention to it up there like they would normally because of this uh, very understandable distraction going on? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say some people certainly are. There are, you know, a lot of diehard Iditarod fans. And in some ways, it does kind of like provide a nice distraction from the coronavirus reality that we're all living in. So I think there are some people who are certainly still paying attention. But I do think it is, you know, muted to a degree because of all of the news about the in Alaska about the state's response to coronavirus and, you know, also across the country and, and across the globe as all of these different precautions and responses are taken. So I would say there is still a level of enthusiasm and interest. However, it is definitely quelled a bit by the current coronavirus climate. And in Nome, where the race ends, it sounds like they've basically shut down all of the sort of festivities after the winner crosses the finish line. I guess there's a there's a you know big events, there's a basketball tournament and all that's been shut down, um, which has to mute the excitement of the race and, and drive home the reality that everybody's living. But I think we should end sort of on an upbeat note. And I really loved your profile, Tegan, of some of the dogs that are racing in the Iditarod. Dodge, the focused knucklehead, Mask, the teacher's pet, Juke, the life of the party. Um, who is your favorite dog? Let's go out on a sweet note. Ooh, that is a good question. Yeah, I've been so I've been covering the race for this is my fifth year covering the Iditarod. I'm usually out on the trail this year. I'm helping from Anchorage. But every year almost we've been doing these dog profiles because we talk so much about the mushers. But there's also hundreds of dogs out there, and we find there's nothing mushers like talking about as much as their dogs. 
Hard to pick, but I think my favorite dog profile is Sparky. Sparky was the sensitive soul and a dog on Ali Zirkle's team. And if anyone has time, we have this I Did a Pod podcast, and you can listen to Zirkle explain Sparky's personality herself. It's very amusing. It's a good respite during the coronavirus times. Sparky's real name is Sparky, but he goes by Sparky Doodah. He's a six-year-old dog on Zirkle's team. And what I thought was amusing was Zirkle talked about how Sparky needs a lot of TLC. He really needs a lot of uh, talking to. He needs a lot of massages. And he really operates best if he just gets a lot of attention. So I think I like Sparky Doodah best. Don't we all need a lot of attention and massages? (laughs) Tegan Hamlin is a reporter with Alaska Public Media. Tegan will post some links to some of your stories, including the profiles of the doggies on our show page. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more Hang Up and Listen. In our bonus segment this week, Joel and I talked about the death of March Madness and what we are missing. It is sort of a seasonal national rite of passage, right, that we all sort of rally around this. We understand that, you know, people find community in Selection Sunday, these online bracket pools that you have with office mates that you may never speak with otherwise, but you're part of their bracket pool. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Joel Anderson, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.